I'm Pastor Mike Winger, and this is Bible Thinker, the program dedicated to thinking biblically about everything. All right, sort of messes up the beginning of my live stream when my cat jumps on my shoulder right as I'm trying to click go live. Uh, this is Mika, if you, if you don't know her. She just happens to be hungry, and uh, it's not time for food yet. Um, okay, today's live stream is about an intellectual piece of evidence. So it's like an intellectual journey um, to look at a, um, an evidence or a piece of evidence for the idea that God inspired the Bible, that the, um, that the scriptures speak of Jesus and he's the fulfillment of them so that it legitimizes Jesus. And of course, to speak just to the fact that there is a God in the first place. So I'm, I'm really, you know, asking a lot of this live stream of what we're about to do right now. But I want to walk you through the whole thought process. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you this one major piece of evidence. It's Psalm 22. Um, then I want to take your, uh, anticipate your objections. And we're going to actually take specific objections from an atheist and from a, um, an anti-missionary Jewish rabbi. He's, an, he, he's specifically, his, his whole focus of his life's mission is to go against Christian missionaries. And we're going to take their objections then I'm going to go to your live questions for any objections that are left hanging in the air that you might have. So that's the plan today. This is the Tuesday live stream. I'm uh, Pastor Mike Winger. I do this every Tuesday dealing with theology, apologetics. You know how it is and subscribe if you're interested in this kind of content and you like to just uh, learn to think biblically about everything. That's the agenda and the goal. I will say, uh, go easy in the live chat today because we're, we're, we don't have all of our mods. And so um, they're not going to be able to play games with you. If you're a knucklehead, you're just going to get, you know, muted or, or uh, it's timed out and we're not going to argue with you on it because we don't have the time. So uh, let me just dig right into it. Let's, let's just start with the content. I like to go straight to content. Um, here is my little presentation. Hi. <laughs> Hi, this is a PowerPoint presentation I've adapted to use here in this online way. Um, and here we go. If I'm right, if I'm persuasive, this is one really, you know, one, I think, important reason, one uh, thoughtful reason to suggest that you should believe in God, believe in Jesus, and you should submit to Jesus because guess what? He really is the one who uh, loved you, died for you, paid for your sins, and you can be forgiven and you can have eternal life through his name if if, if I'm right about what I understand about the evidence you're about to see. So we're going to talk about the crucifixion psalm. The crucifixion psalm is Psalm 22. Now, I've talked about this before. But I have some new content to share today that I haven't shared uh, online before. Um, the crucifixion psalm is Psalm 22 written about a thousand years before Jesus walked the earth. So Jesus, we're talking like around 30 AD. He's, he's doing his whole ministry, crucifixion, resurrection, that kind of thing. It's happening right about that time. But this is like a thousand years before that. There's this Jewish Old Testament. You know, you know, all the books of the Old Testament were written long before Jesus ever showed up. And so we have this Psalm 22, this passage in the book of Psalms, written a thousand years before Christ shows up. And it details the, the specific stuff about Jesus' death, his crucifixion, the events around the crucifixion, and the far-reaching, uh, world-impacting events that happen after his crucifixion. It's progressive, though, so I need you to stay with me. And realize, because this is, we, we have this thing where um, uh, people won't let us finish our thoughts. Well, this is one giant thought. This whole video is one whole thought. I'd like for you to consider the whole thought and not to just pause and disagree with me every step of the way because you'll never hear the whole idea. So you won't really be disagreeing with it. You'll just be missing it. Um, so what I'm saying here is it's progressive. As I lay out verses in this psalm and we compare them to Jesus, 
you're going to see some connection. Oh, that's interesting. A little more connection. Oh, that's interesting. Then you'll start to see a lot more connection. And as we put it all together, you'll see that this is a very powerful, uh, very powerful case. So yes, here's the case. Then objections from from a, a Jew and an atheist, and then your questions. All right. This is the first verse we're going to look at, and it's actually in our New Testament. This is recorded uh, from Matthew. It's Jesus on the cross, and he says, right, so it says, while he's on the cross, Eli, Eli, sama bachtani. Now, this means, and it's translated for us, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you forsaken me? Now, most people, when they first come across this verse in the New Testament, they're rather shocked. They're like, what is going on that Jesus would say this on the cross. I thought this was intentional. I thought this was the plan. But now Jesus seems to be like in despair and confusion. That's to quote the skeptic Bart Ehrman. Jesus is in despair and confusion. Um, but actually, what's happening here is a lot more interesting than that. Now, don't get me wrong. He, he, is, he is definitely in a, a sense of despair or uh, great sorrow and affliction and grief. But he's doing more than that. You see, back at the, in the day, there were no chapters and verses in the Bible. There was no chapter 22 of Psalms. You, you just couldn't say, turn to Psalm 22. Um, we have examples of this in the New Testament where they try to refer to the Old Testament, but they can't refer to chapter and verse. So it says something like, in the burning bush passage. And a, a, good, a good Jew who knew the word, they would know exactly what the burning bush passage is. And this is the teaching style that rabbis had back then. They would refer to passages of the Old Testament by a concept, a section, or perhaps quoting one verse in that passage. And to the Jewish mind who had well studied and knew the scriptures, which is saturated with the Old Testament, if you quoted this verse, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They would have immediately brought up Psalm 22. In fact, Jesus here, he's on the cross. He's a rabbi quoting an Old Testament passage. And all the Jews, not the Romans hearing it, but the Jews listening, when they hear this phrase from him on the cross, they immediately load in their minds Psalm 22, and now they're doing what you're about to do. They're looking at Jesus on the cross, and they're thinking about Psalm 22. Jesus on the cross and Psalm 22. So let's look at Psalm 22, and let's think about Jesus on the cross. The, ver the first verse, this is the one Jesus quotes on the cross, says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? Um, now, from a Christian standpoint, the answer is very easy. The answer is why? Well, it's for your salvation. It, it, you know, for you and my salvation. Uh, the Father gave the Son because he so loved the world. The, the answer is a very simple and beautiful answer. It focuses right in on the very central meaning of the gospel of Christ. But the, re the reason why we quote this is because Jesus says it on the cross. That means Jesus, uh, or at least the early church, right, is trying to point us to Psalm 22 in some sense. So let's take this journey. In verse 2 of Psalm 22, it says, Oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear, and in the night season, and am not silent. But you are holy, enthroned in the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in you, they trusted in you, and you delivered them. They cried to you and were delivered, they trusted in you, and were not ashamed. So there are those who trust, and they're not ashamed, they are delivered. But yet, this is not going to be the same case for the person in Psalm 22. The speaker of Psalm 22, he's not in experiencing this deliverance. So there's a contrast here um, between his being forsaken and them being delivered. That's the contrast. And this fits well with Jesus. But it's important to note this in the second and third and fourth verses of Psalm 22. The speaker is not impugning God's goodness. So when he says, God, why have you forsaken me? He's not like, I don't trust you anymore. You're not good. None of that stuff's going on. 
reading it in context, he immediately says, oh, you're holy. You're enthroned in the praises of Israel. So you're good. They were delivered, but I'm forsaken. This, I mean, this already sounds, and this may not convince yet a skeptic, but at least a Christian would recognize, this sounds a whole lot like the gospel. Uh, Jesus was, was delivered unto death that we might be given life. Uh, he was forsaken so that we would not be. And then the contrast is there in verse 6 as we read on in Psalm 22. But I'm a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. Um, so they were delivered, but not me. I'm a worm and no man. Now this, this word for worm is really interesting. Uh, there's different Hebrew words for worm, um, which is interesting because Hebrew itself is like a kind of a small language. There aren't, it doesn't have the kind of giant vocabulary that some other languages have like English. Um, but there's different words for worm. And this worm is tolaoth uh, in the Hebrew. Th- this tolaoth worm is remarkably interesting. It's a very special worm to, to, to Jews and especially in relation to the, the, temple, uh, the temple rituals and the events that would go around with the priests and all that. You see, this tolaoth worm is where they would get the red dye that they would use in order to create the the clothing and dye the um, the the the, uh, the trappings or the um, the coverings for the tabernacle. So nowadays in modern Israel, there's this group called the Temple Institute, and they want to reinstate sacrifices. They want to rebuild the temple, and they're trying to gather everything they need. Well, there's something they need, and it's the Tolaoth worm. Uh, we just call it the Kermes worm. K E R M E S. You can Google it and check it out on your own. It actually looks more like an insect. But that's what we call the Kermes worm. Um, but they would they smash this thing to get the red dye. Well, the Temple Institute in Israel just got a shipment of these Kermes worms in not too long ago. And they were pretty excited about it because for a long time they didn't have access to them. And so this is uh, to them like, oh, this is the legitimate way, you know, to help legitimize our, our plans for the next temple. Whole interesting branch of things to think about and look into there. But uh, in Psalm 22, he says, I'm a worm, I'm a Tolaoth. This Kermes worm, how it reproduces is particularly interesting when you think about Jesus. The Kermes worm, uh, and I'm not saying this is all 100% proof of anything. I just think it's very interesting. The Kermes worm, it climbs up onto a tree and it attaches itself to a tree. It's like a certain kind of oak tree. And it, it then like hardens itself. It atta- like physically gets stuck on the tree. It can't move. There, while it's stuck fastened to the tree, it gives birth to its young. And the young, the new worms, they eat the mother. They eat the mother in order to live. This is what they do. They eat the mom and then they go on and then they live their lives. What's left on the tree, of course, is a little red splotch because of the red dye that's inside of these worms' bodies. Um, Later, it's said that that this red dye will oxidize and turn white. And they use this stuff to like, they use it for shellac, they use it for heart medicine. It's just a really interesting critter to do some research on, the Kermes worm. So it's like... Here's Jesus going to the cross. He's going to, he's attaching himself to this tree. He's dying that he might give life to his offspring, so to speak. And, um, and wow, I think it's really very interesting. Um, but we read on because this is just the very, very beginning. We've only started to get interesting. So stick with me. This is going to be a kind of a longer video, I think, but um, very much worth it, I think, for your time and your thoughts. Verse 7 of Psalm 22, it says, all those who see me ridicule me, they shoot out the lip, they shake the head. And now let me just pause for a second. Um, shooting out the lip, shaking the head, this is their cultural way of flipping the bird, right? Every culture has different ways of basically flipping someone off, uh, that kind of thing. And so this was their cultural way. They, they shoot out the lip, you know, they're, they're sticking their lip out and they're shaking their head at you. That would have that same kind of insulting, you know, connotation as some of the stuff that you can think of, which I won't, uh, I won't imitate here. 
on my live stream for you. You know what I'm talking about. So they're, they're, they're doing this to him. They're ridiculing him. And what they say is very interesting. They say, um, he trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Oh, if God, you know, this guy, this sufferer of Psalm 22, he trusted in God. So he has a reputation of godliness. But the onlookers who are ridiculing him, they see his current plight as evidence that God has rejected him. Think of this. He had a reputation for godliness, but they see this as evidence that God has rejected him. This is actually what most modern Jewish, uh, I should say uh, the majority of modern Jews think about Jesus on the cross. They think, okay, well, maybe you think he was the Messiah. Maybe perhaps, you know, the, the Talmud said he was doing some kind of miraculous type things, you know, um, and so that's fine, but, but he was crucified and that's all the evidence we need to say that he was not the Messiah. Of course, my case is going to be that whole crucifixion thing. That was what the Messiah would do. That's what Psalm 22 says. But what they say specifically is he trusted in God, let God deliver him. Well, this is quoted in Matthew 27, 43. They say he trusted in God while Jesus is on the cross. The crowd is looking at him and some of them in the crowd are saying he trusted in God. Let him deliver him now if he will have him. For he said he was the son of God. Jesus had these incredible spiritual claims. Oh, now he's on the cross. Pa, see, we, we could tell he's wrong. Of course, they just didn't understand the purpose of what was happening. And so there it is uh, quoted in Matthew 27, 43. And already some objections are coming into the minds of skeptics. And may I say, I'm not a fool. I'll get there in a minute. <laughs> Just bear with me through the psalm and we'll come to your objections. Uh, psalm 22, verse 9. Uh, but you are he who took me out of the womb. You made me trust while on my mother's breasts. I was cast upon you from birth. From my mother's womb, you've been my God. So Psalm 22 continues to describe the person and the experiences of this one individual. And in this case, um, he's been faithful to God from the time of his birth, even before birth, when he was in the womb. Now, this is a bold claim. And one could say, well, David, you know, who's the author of the psalm here? Um, David, you got, you got to find a better place to be, kitty cat. There you go. She just, usually they just leave me alone but, uh, during the streams, but not today. Probably should have fed him. All right. I apologize for that cat interruption. Um, so this, this, uh, this is a bold claim that David couldn't make. King David was certainly not faithful to God from his mother's womb. Think about this. I mean, the guy, he, um, he talks about the sins of his youth, you know, in the Psalms. Also, it's, you know, we read, we read that he committed adultery and that he murdered Uriah, the husband of the, of the woman whom he had adultery with to cover it up. I mean, this is like, whoa, you know, he's been trusting in God and faithful in that sense. But this actually makes more sense with Jesus than it does with David or anybody else I can think of. And again, this is not here. I haven't gotten to the great stuff yet. This is just interesting stuff. Just log it away as, hmm, that's interesting. That would make more sense with the Christian understanding of Jesus than it would with anyone else. All right, next verse. Be not far from me. Now, this is a request to God on behalf of the, the, the person in the psalm. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They gape at me with their mouths like a raging and roaring lion. So the person in Psalm 22 is surrounded by animals? Uh, no, this will give you some, some Hebrew poetry help here. In Hebrew poetry, um, when they speak of animals, they're speaking of people generally here, like in, at least in this kind of context, and they're relating those people to animals. So strong bulls of Bashan aren't just mean people. They're powerful people. They're powerful, influential people, people who, who could take you down. 
Um, we'll also have people compared to dogs later on. Dogs are like lesser people. Dog is like a diminutive, like you dog, you filthy dog, you're, you're unclean, you're filthy, you're a dog in, in that culture, right? To us, it's like, what's up, dog? You know, like that's totally not what they're saying. Um, well, bulls of Bashan are like strong, powerful people. And so with Jesus, how I relate this to Christ is that strong, powerful leaders came against Christ. Um, he was crucified with something of a conspiracy or cohort that existed between um, the Pharisees, Sadducees, right? With the, the high priest of the Jews at the head, a lot of political power there, along with Herod, who was sort of the puppet king of the Jews, along with Pilate, who was the Roman procurator or, or governor of Judea at the time, who was really in control, ultimately. And so they, they worked together in order to, uh, to take him down. And uh, that is, in fact, what happened. And you might say Pilate was reluctant, but he was part of it, and he uh, acquiesced um, after the whole question about Jesus being a king that might rival Caesar came up, and he, he bowed to it. So, bulls of Bashan, that, that, that does make sense. Um, let's keep reading. Verse 14, and now it starts to get a lot more specific, um, a lot more specific. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. A potsherd or a potsherd is like a, a broken piece of pottery, just a really dried, cracked, broken piece of pottery. And he says, my tongue clings to my jaws. You've brought me to the dust of death. Now, this is all very poetic. I get it's poetic. But poetic doesn't mean meaningless, nor does it mean infinitely flexible in its meaning. It's poetic, but it's describing specific physiological symptoms that now goes beyond just a generic trial, right? We're, we're like really narrowing it down to some sort of specific event that's happening. So let's look at each of these. I'm poured out like water. This would be, I mean, what, what is, that's obviously poetic, but what does it mean to be poured out like water? Well, with, with Jesus, we could say this fits. Um, Jesus was beaten with the Roman flagrum. This would have dug into his back. It's not just like a normal whip. Have you seen the Passion of the Christ, um, which many of you have? I would just say that was an understatement. Uh, what Christ went through was probably much worse than the portrayal on the Passion of the Christ. Not that that wasn't bad enough to watch. Um, but yeah, it was much, much worse actually than that. But the flagrum was meant to uh, hit the person. It was leather straps with embedded like little metal balls with spikes on them or pieces of glass, things like that. And it would dig into the person's back and they would just tear flesh away from your body. And so each whip wasn't really a whip. It was, it was ripping you apart. Um, Jesus experienced that. He was also beaten with in front of the high priests. He was beaten uh, in front of Herod. And he was beaten as well by the Roman soldiers. Finally, after being pierced by nails, as he continues to pour his blood out, he, oh, by the way, when he's walking to the cross, he's carrying at least, at least part of the way, the patibulum, the top bar of the cross. Jesus is carrying that. He's dripping his blood from Jerusalem to Golgotha, from the place of his, his beatings to the place of his um, final crucifixion. He's just dripping his blood all over the place. So poured out like water fits very well with that description. Uh, finally, when they stab him with the spear after he's already died, uh, blood and water pour out. Probably the pericardium around the heart was ruptured as the spear went in, uh, causing blood and water to actually pour out. And so he's literally poured out. Um, that fits the description of crucifixion. But there's so much more. All my bones are out of joint. Now, a lot of medical research has gone into crucifixion. You're welcome to look it up on your own. There's an article um, on the Journal of the American Medical Association website. And I'm trying to remember the name of the article, but it was something like on the effects of crucifixion, um, something like that. But it's a well-respected published article. But the idea is this. 
your arms are stretched out and nailed to a tree, to wood, and there you are, unable to properly breathe and unable to properly hold your body in its normal like structural shape. And so what happens is the body's yanking down, which is causing it to pull outward on the shoulders. And so we expect a crucifixion victim to have their shoulders become dislocated, possibly other bones become dislocated as well as a result of the crucifixion. So he says, all my bones are out of joint. That, that does fit crucifixion really well. And when you think about it, what kinds of events fit all these things? What, what, what's something else that's like the crucifixion that fits so well? My heart is like wax that is melted within me. The heart being like wax melting, this could be speaking of heart failure. Heart failure, which is the popular medical opinion of how Jesus would have died upon the cross. Um, that as he's unable to breathe, as he has blood loss and hypovolemic shock, so he's, he's weak. And that's what we get to the next phrase. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, so he's weak. He collapses. They force Simon of Cyrene to uh, help carry his cross because he doesn't have the ability to get it there all the way on his own because of the beatings and the blood loss. That his heart is literally failing. And there on the cross, his heart um, does actually finally fail. Um, my strength is dried up like a pot's herd. My tongue clings to my jaws. This speaks of dehydration. If you have a sticky tongue, you may be dehydrated or you might have a drug problem. That's also a possibility, but you may just be dehydrated. Um, so this, this sticky tongue thing, that's what that's about. The, the strength is dried up. So he, he's dehydrated. Now, how do you get dehydrated in that environment? Well, blood loss, massive blood loss causes dehydration. That's what hypovolemic shock does to you. The body is just pulling all the liquid it can to keep your blood going and the heart is racing and pounding and pounding to move things faster because there's just less blood to go around. This is, becomes a pretty intense thing. My tongue clings to my jaws. You've brought me to the dust of death. Now, to, to I think the Jewish mind, they know exactly what this means, right? Or to someone who knows the scriptures. Uh, Adam, because of your sin, right? From dust you are and to dust you shall return. Dust of death is like, I'm, I'm experiencing that mortal death and it even harken back, harkens back to the curse of, that fell on Adam that was now being um, now being exacted on Jesus Christ on the cross where he was suffering for uh, the sin of, of all mankind. So that seems pretty, um, pretty interesting to me. I mean, it really starts to get compelling because this fits well with specific things. The bones out of joint, all this kind of stuff, like that looks like it fits crucifixion and even more so, it looks like it's hard to fit something else. What else could it be? The next verse says, For dogs have surrounded me, the congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. This requires a few things. There's these dogs, usually like the lesser people. They've surrounded me. So there's a mob around him. Physically, he is, he is viewable by others. They can look at him while he's, while he's being killed. While he's in the state with his, uh, with his arms being pulled out of joint. With um, here, his hands and feet being pierced. So it's public and it involves a hands and feet piercing. I mean, this is honestly, this is often the verse that gets quoted, just this one verse out of the psalm. And people go, wait a minute. I mean, boy, that talk about narrowing things down. What else could this be reasonably? What's the most reasonable description, you know, thing to say Psalm 22 is describing? Then he goes on and says, I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. I can count all my bones. So when someone was at the cross, on the cross, um, they would be stripped generally naked. Uh, oftentimes completely naked, and Jesus may have been. And they're put upon the cross, their arms stretched out, their rib cage becomes opened, their 
bones are pulled out of joint. And so literally count all my bones is like a real apt description of this. Uh, the, the nature of being on the cross is that um, your body is suspended in an open position where normally when you relax, like if you breathe right now, if you take a breath and you relax, you exhale, right? On the cross, this is absolutely reversed because there's so much pulling going on in your torso from, the, uh, from your arms being stretched out, from the weight of your body pulling down. This actually makes it so that when you relax, the person on the cross, their lungs fill with air. So when they relax, they fill with air. Now, to, in order to exhale, they have to push. They have to push up on this, in Jesus' case, on the spike between his, or going through his feet, pushing up on this thing in order to just exhale. So the Romans had really worked on getting crucifixion to be this horrible, horrible, torturous thing. There's more details that are worse than what I've explained, but um, you get the idea. Um, so I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. It's public and it looks exactly like crucifixion. Then verse 18, they divide my garments among them and for my clothing, they cast lots. Now, this is where, again, Psalm 22 just starts to get weird when you try to imply, you know, apply it to somebody else or something else. Like, who's watching in, in, this, in this environment? They're, they're, they're stretched out, bones out of joint, all, all these exact symptoms. And they're watching people gamble for their clothing. Like, who does this? Well, the answer is crucifixion victims do. People who are being executed naked and have their clothes and are, have people gambling for their clothing, this is a description of that. And if you have objections, please note that I'm going to be getting to them. <laughs> but first, let me build a case. I'm just asking for your patience. Uh, Matthew 27, 35 records the fulfillment of this. It says, Then they crucified him and divided his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. Um, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Uh, Matthew quotes actually Psalm 22 because he saw these things as being an actual fulfillment of those things. And so, at least so far, I'm trying to build a case that, wow, this sure looks like what Jesus did on the cross. Um, verse 19, but you, O Lord, do not be far from me. Uh, o my strength, hasten to help me. This is back to Psalm 22 here. It's a cry for help. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth, from the horns of the wild oxen. And then here's the whole shift. Here's the big shift. You have answered me. So I'm at this whole state, right? I'm being brought to the dust of death. They're publicly watching me. I'm, I'm naked. They're taking my clothes. I'm spread out. I can count my bones. I, uh, I, I, I'm dehydrated. I'm poured out like water. All these descriptions. Hands and feet pierced. And help me. Save me from this. And the answer is, you've answered me. You've answered me. And so there's going to be, there's going to be help. There's going to be salvation. There's going to be some deliverance from this. Now, what help can there be to someone who's brought to the dust of death? There's only two options. Either they almost, almost die. Like they're brought to the brink of death and then like God saves them. God revives them. Or they actually die and then God revives them. Um, those are the two options that are here. Um, so I'm just saying there are two options that seems like it could be open potentially, although dust of death, you might say that that's a good case that they actually die. Um, so this would be then a reference to the resurrection if that's the case. So verse 21 gives us the change. You've answered me. Um, now we're going to move forward in the Psalm to verse 27. It's all good content that's worth studying, but I know how long this video is going to be. So I'm trying to stay focused on, I think the most pertinent parts. Uh, verse 27 says, all the ends of the world shall remember and turn to the Lord. Now verse 27 is different, right? Because uh, verse 21 shifted the change in the psalm. The psalm goes from all this bad stuff's happening. Then verse 21's like, and you delivered me from it. Like, you've answered me. So from there on, it's all about the results 
of all the bad stuff that happened and God's deliverance of this person. Here's the results. All the ends of the world shall remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations um, shall uh, worship before you. All the families of the nations shall worship before you. Now this is, when you, when you just really think about these words, this is remarkably profound. This is being written by a Jewish author and the primary audience for, for quite a long time was a Jewish audience, right? Well, it's saying, though they were surrounded by pagan nations who do not worship Yahweh, the God of Israel. They do not worship the God of Israel. This psalm is saying that after these events of this suffering of the person in Psalm 22, and after them being delivered, it's going to cause people around the world to turn to the God of Israel and worship him, the Lord, Yahweh. This is a profound prediction, right? This is, in a sense, more profound than all the other stuff we've read so far. Because whatever ha happens, it has to have a global impact in order for it to fulfill the writing of Psalm 22. This sounds an awful lot like what Jesus did. In fact, Jesus is the only Jew in the, in the world who has turned the hearts of Gentiles around planet Earth to the God of Israel. Let that sink in, please. This is kind of a profound thing. We almost don't notice the impact of Christianity because we just are, we grow up with it already having this huge impact on all of world history and on communities around the globe. But, um, but this is a powerful thing. Uh, you know, but when the psalm was written, within Israel, they worship Yahweh, that's it. Now, around the world, around the world. And it's because of Jesus. It's because of Jesus. Uh, you can't really argue with that. That is an actual fulfillment. Um, and I think it's neat. Verse 29, it says, All the prosperous of the earth shall eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust shall bow before him, even he who cannot keep himself alive. So the result, the result is in some sort of hope of an afterlife. Think about this, right? Because they're going down to the dust. I went down to the dust and I was delivered. And because of that, it, when you go to the dust, you can also bow before God. You can also, you know, who you who can't keep yourself alive, you can also have this hope of eat and worship or this afterlife, this resurrected life. This is, this is amazing. This is like the, this is the gospel in the poetry of Psalm 22, a thousand years before Jesus Christ was around. You, because, because Jesus died, you can have eternal life. Even though you may physically die, yet you will live forever. This is not written by Christians, guys. Um, all right, we keep reading. Verse 30, a posterity shall serve him. It will be recounted of the Lord to the next generation. They will come and declare his righteousness to a people who will be born that he has done this. And that's how the psalm ends. The psalm ends with his prediction that this, this event in Psalm 22 that results in worldwide you know, conversions to Yahweh, to the God of Israel, that results in people um, being able to be saved uh, from death even. after, Even though they die, they will live eternally, eat and worship, you know, experience relationship with God forever. This message will be the message that gets recounted of to the next generation and thereon. So Psalm 22 is predicting, here's the event, here's how it happens, and then it's going to spread around the world and this story is going to be told everywhere. Um, like, if, if I didn't know this was written a thousand years before Jesus, I would think it was written by Christians and it was written about Jesus. It's just too good. When you take it as a whole, when you put it all together, if you take, you can nitpick apart any one statement I've made, but when you put them all together, it's a really impressive whole. Let's look at it. Here's 16 points of correspondence that I think are at least interesting. And when you put them all together, I think they're persuasive. 
The person in Psalm 22, like Jesus, is forsaken while others are saved. He's rejected by the people. Let me get rid of my face here so you can see it better. If you're listening on podcasts, you might want to get this on video if you want to see these actual diagrams I'm putting up. So he's rejected by the people. Verse 3, yet he has always been faithful to God. Verse 3, uh, number 4, powerful people have gathered against him. 5, he's poured out like water. 6, dehydration. 7, blood loss. 8, he's brought to death. 9, his hands and feet are pierced. 10, his bones are out of joint. 11, a public execution before a hateful crowd. 12, they take and gamble for his clothes. 13, after all this, he's delivered. 14, the story gets spread to all people around the world. 15, Gentiles will worship Yahweh because of this. 16, the effects, this thing will affect people even after they die. These are all points of correspondence between the crucifixion of Jesus and Psalm 22, and I think it's pretty impressive. Um, persuasive, in my opinion, actually. And it is not the only piece of evidence, but it's the piece of evidence I'm focusing on today for this live stream because I want to get to objections, and here they come. This, some of you may recognize, is Arun Ra. Um, Arun Ra is a um, uh, atheist YouTuber who's got a pretty big atheist YouTube channel, um, and he usually doesn't do this, but occasionally he decides to make videos trying to refute Christian apologetics. Um, so... This is one of those videos. And listen to what he says about Psalm 22. You already have the context. You already know all this stuff. He, he labels a few specific accusations. And I want to take those head on and respond to them. And then we'll, then we'll get to the Jewish ones uh, after this. And many of the prophecies that Christians point out as being fulfilled by Jesus or that were supposed to have predicted Jesus are either Jewish prophecies, talk about someone or something else, or they aren't written as prophecies at all. Like pretending that King David was writing about Jesus rather than himself. And David wasn't even a prophet, and his psalms are not considered prophetic within the Jewish religion. David is talking about being encircled by his enemies, hunting him with dogs, biting at his hands and feet. And that may work from David's perspective, at least metaphorically. Oh, there you go. Um, I, I'm not sure why, but the um, audio cut out there for a second. So what he said, if I recall correctly, is he says that may work for Jesus if or for David, if you think of it metaphorically, but it doesn't work for Jesus in any uh, way, shape, or form. Now does it? And he ends with the question, now does it? And my answer is going to be, it does. But this is Arn Ra's complaints. He's, he's got the first complaint. He goes, hey, Psalm 22, Mike, you're trying to apply it to Jesus, but you're not even allowed to do that. Like, I, there's a rule that you cannot apply it to Jesus. And the rule is, it's about David. You can't apply it to Jesus. Then I have a second complaint, Arn Ra, and that is that Psalm 22 is not prophetic anyways. And David isn't even considered a prophet. Um, this Now, he speaks to this as though it's just sort of known. Like, you know, this is just the kind of thing people know about David and know about Psalm 22. And I think he's got Jewish sources because of some other stuff he says later. And so what I want to do is I want to look at not Christian sources now. Let's look at Jewish sources and we'll ask the Jews, what do they think about these complaints? Is is uh, Psalm 22 only about David? Is Psalm 22 potentially prophetic? Is David even considered a prophet? Whereas Arn Ross says, no, he's not. Well, the first thing you have to realize is just the climate of Jewish understanding of, um, of, of how the Old Testament as a whole speaks of Messiah. We would say Jesus is the Messiah, but that's a title. That's a Jewish title that Jews use. And they say there is this person that the Old Testament speaks of that's supposed to come and he's the Messiah. Now, how important is it to believe in this Messiah? Is it like only some Jews do? Actually, uh, Rambam, who is one of the most influential Jews in history, uh, the, the Rambam, that, uh, 
that's that's the nickname they have for him. Uh, but from the uh, from the well from 1100 to 1200, he was doing his work, and his stuff is so influential that modern day Jews will actually shave the way they shave their beards is often based on instructions from Rambam from this guy. But more importantly, he lays out 13 principles of what it is required of you if you're going to be a good Jew, if you're going to be an actual honest Jew. 13 principles of the Jewish faith or of Judaism. The 12th principle, number 12, is the one I have on your screen. The Jews must believe in the coming of Messiah, awaiting him every day with unwavering faith. Unwavering faith. So there's this centrality of the idea of the Messiah. This is not a Christian thing. We didn't make this stuff up, right? This is a Jewish thing that exists outside of of those who hold to the belief that Jesus is the Messiah. This is a Jewish thing that says there is a Messiah. What else did he say? Rambam also said that anyone who does not believe in the Messiah or whoever does not look forward to his coming denies not only the teachings of the other prophets, but also those of the Torah and of Moses, our teacher, for the Torah attested to him. To who? To Messiah. So there is, there is the idea that it's so central that if you don't hold to belief in Messiah, you're denying the scriptures of the Jewish people. Okay, that's kind of a big deal. Let me read something else from the Babylonian Talmud. This is an authoritative Jewish source. It's not a Christian source. We don't hold to the Talmud. Um, but they consider this to be the oral law having been written down for them. So it's considered very authoritative. Um, and in Sanhedrin 99a in the, in the Babylonian Talmud, it says, all the prophets prophesied all the good things only in respect to the messianic era. Now, here's a sweeping statement about all the prophets. They all were speaking. Whenever they talk about good stuff, it's always about the messianic era. There's just this sort of, you know, you know, some, some get mad at Christians. We see Jesus everywhere. Well, I'm sorry, but the Talmud sees Messiah everywhere. And that's not a new idea for Christians. Um, so also in the same section, it says, none of the prophets prophesied except of the days of the Messiah, except of the days of the Messiah. So that's, I mean, that's kind of a big deal here. But let's be more specific. Um, Rashi is one of the most respected, if not the most respected, uh, Jewish rabbi in history, um, certainly since the time of the Middle Ages, I think. Um, his full name is Rabbi Shlomo Itzhaki, but they just call him Rashi. This rabbi was considered the greatest Jewish commentator of the Middle Ages, for sure, and his commentary is lifted up so highly, it's so highly respected that when they print the Jewish Bible, right, the, the Hebrew Bible, they print his commentary with it frequently. Like, it's just printed with his commentary because it's considered so important. Now, this particular, uh, so I'm, I'm saying he's an authoritative Jewish source. He, he's not my source. He's a Jewish source. Uh, the Jews, though, they got from Rashi, this list of 49 male prophets and seven female prophets. So here's all the prophets of Judaism. He's like, I, he lists them all, 49 male, seven female. And David is listed as one of those prophets. David is one of the male prophets of Judaism, according to Rashi. Now that certainly trumps Aaron Ra. I don't know where his sources are. I've never heard him quote a source when he's talking about religious content. No, I have heard him. I take that back. I've never heard him quote a good source, um, to be completely honest. But in, in this particular video, he doesn't quote a source. He just makes a claim. Oh yeah, David's not a prophet. Okay, well Rashi would disagree. This is this is I'm, I'm well within, you know, traditional Judaism to say David's a prophet, and the things the prophets wrote can speak of Messiah. Um, also, um, he taught that Psalm 22 in particular was about the future, and I'm quoting Rashi. He said David recited this prayer for the future. Okay, so this is not this is not some new Christian idea or invention. We're not ripping Psalm 22 out of its context and forcing it to be about Jesus. 
it was understood even by Rashi. He didn't think it was about Jesus, right? He came after Jesus, didn't believe in Jesus. But he did understand Psalm 22 was about something in the future. And um, his view was that it was about Israel as one man, a future suffering of Israel as one man. Um, I, I think it is about one man, <laughs> one man in Israel. And that fits Jesus quite well. It makes a lot of sense. Um, so there's also a Jewish midrash, a famous Jewish midrash from the 8th century AD called the Pesikta Rabati. And I may have spelled that wrong. I think it might be two S's for Pesikta. I'm trying to remember now. Um, anyway, here's the quote from this midrash. It was because of the ordeal of the son of David that David wept, saying, my strength is dried up like a pot's herd. Now, here's what you got to know. If you're a Gentile and you don't know this, when it says son of David, it means Messiah. This is, this is Jewish speak for Messiah. This became a normal title for Messiah. The Messiah is compared to David so constantly in Jewish writings. In fact, in Ezekiel, it just calls the Messiah David. He's just called David. And so um, the son of David is code for Messiah. This is why when Jesus is walking and there's these blind men that want to be healed, they cry out to him, son of David, have mercy on us. They're saying, you're the Messiah, we believe in you. That's a proclamation of Jewish, uh, messianic proclamation of faith. And so it was because of the ordeal of the son of David that David wept, saying, my strength is dried up like a potsherd. This comes from this uh, 8th century uh, Jewish text. This is certainly, um, I think, oops, sorry, I, I'm moving things around. I think this is really good evidence uh, that Aaron Ra's accusation just doesn't work. There's like something to this. There's something to these Christians who are grabbing Psalm 22, wanting to make it about Jesus. There's something to that. And, and even non-Christian Jews can see that. Let me quote to you a larger section of this Midrash because it's really interesting. It goes in and talks about how the Messiah is being related in Psalm 22. So I'm just going to read to you a section. I won't put it on your screen, but I'll just read it to you. Listen to this and think about it. Really neat. During the ordeal of the son of David, the Holy One, blessed be he, I will say to him, Ephraim, my, tr my true Messiah. So Ephraim is a name for the Messiah, just like David is in this text. Ephraim, my true Messiah, long ago, ever since the six days of creation, Thou didst take this ordeal upon thyself. At this moment, thy pain is like my pain. It is taught, moreover, that in the month of Nisan, the patriarchs will arise and say to the Messiah, Ephraim, our true Messiah, even though we are thy forebearers, thou art greater than we, because thou didst suffer for the iniquities of our children, and terrible ordeals befell thee. This is not a Christian text, but it's definitely, definitely sounding like it's talking about Jesus, isn't it? He's suffering for their sins. That's what it says. Wow. Let me read on. For the sake of thou didst, um, or for the sake of Israel, thou didst become a laughingstock and a derision among the nations of the earth, and didst sit in darkness, in thick darkness, and thine eyes saw no light, and thy skin cleaved to thy bones, and thy body was as dry as a piece of wood, and thy eyes grew dim from fasting, and thy strength was dried up like a pot's herd. All these afflictions on account of the iniquities of our children. The, the Pesikta Rabata, a highly respected Jewish midrash, it's, it's like a commentary teaching on the Old Testament. This is, it just continues. I could read on it. It just quotes Psalm 22 and relates it to the sufferings of the Messiah very directly. Yet it takes way more liberties and, and is way more poetic than I would be even with Psalm 22. They really actually take a lot more liberties. What you find is that the New Testament authors, as well as myself in this case, we're a lot more conservative and careful, and we won't stretch the text as much as even some of these Jewish sources often do. 
Um, the New Testament authors were much more controlled and careful in their exegesis of Scripture than the um, uh, than even some of the rabbis of the time, it's, it's, which is an interesting dynamic. Uh, yeah. So, in other words, there were Jews in ancient Israel that thought that there was a suffering Messiah. There was a Messiah who was going to suffer. We get this not just from Psalm 22, we get it from Isaiah 53, from Daniel 9, from other places. There's this suffering Messiah. And this became a problem, a dilemma, because there's these other passages that say that Messiah is supposed to rule and reign in righteousness. And so something interesting happened during like the intertestamental period where the, between the Old and New Testaments, between them being all written, um, where there were Jews trying to figure out how to puzzle together these suffering passages with the ruling and reigning passages. Listen to what uh, Raphael Patai says about this. Raphael Patai is an eminent scholar. He taught at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem and served as professor of anthropology at Dropsy University. He said this about a theory of two messiahs that showed up in ancient Judaism. Now, some of you are like, this is boring, Mike. But the rest of you are like, this is awesome. And I'm doing this for you. <laughs> so, um, when the death of the Messiah became an established tenet in Talmudic times. Did you hear that? When the death of the Messiah became an established tenet in Talmudic times. This was felt to be irreconcilable with the belief in the Messiah as Redeemer who would usher in the blissful millennium of the Messianic age. The dilemma was solved by splitting the person of the Messiah into two. One of them, called Messiah ben Joseph, Messiah son of Joseph, was to raise the armies of Israel against their enemies. And after many victories and miracles, would fall victim Gog uh, and Magog. I think it should say fall victim to Gog and Magog there. Uh, the other Messiah ben David, or Messiah son of David, the second Messiah where they split the two, will come after him. In some legends, will bring him back to life, which psychologically hints at the identity of the two, and will lead Israel to the ultimate victory, the triumph, and the messianic era of bliss. So the idea here is that we've got um, two messiahs because we don't know how to put together that the messiah is supposed to suffer, yet he's also supposed to reign and rule. He's supposed to die, but he's also supposed to like, you know, take over all the world in glory. Now, the Christian understanding of this is that there's one messiah. He just has two major comings, the first and the second coming. That's our understanding of it. I think it makes more sense than splitting into two messiahs. But at least this shows you that ancient Jews were actually and honestly struggling with the idea of the suffering Messiah, such as in Psalm 22. So Aaron's case so far, his complaint was, Psalm 22 is only about David and Psalm 22 is not prophetic. And that fails. I got one more uh, clip to play from him. And then we're going to go to a Jewish objector, uh, Tovia Singer, who is at the forefront, at the forefront of the counter-Christian movement within uh, some Jewish circles. Okay, here is his next complaint. Christians imagine this passage to be about crucifixion. This misinterpretation is based largely on a mistranslation, which has resulted in a few other misinterpreted prophecies too. Okay, real simple, right? Hey, you got a mistranslation. You think it says, they pierced my hands and my feet, but what it really says is, and he put it on the screen if you noticed it for a second, like a lion. They are at my hands and my feet. That's, that's the objection. So we, we mistranslated verse 16. Therefore, Psalm 22 is not about crucifixion. Um, I don't think Aaron Ra explained number one very well. So what I did was I found Tovia Singer, who goes at it uh, with, with all the vigor that he's got. So here's Tovia Singer, who tries to explain this in even more detail. Rabbi Tovia Singer um, says, and you will encounter this online, uh, like I said, he's at the forefront of the anti-missionary movement. That, that's what they call themselves, an Jewish anti-missionaries. His goal is to 
see Jews who call themselves Christians come out of Christianity, forsake Jesus, and uh, adopt his version of Judaism. So he says, needless to say, the phrase, they pierced my hands and my feet, is a Christian contrivance that appears nowhere in the Jewish scriptures. Bear in mind, this stunning mistranslation of the 22nd Psalm did not occur because Christian translators were unaware of the correct meaning of the Hebrew word. Clearly, this was not the case. You, you, you can't get around it. He's saying Christians lied. They, your Bible has deceptive mistranslation intentionally put in it to make it look like Psalm 22 is about Jesus. He goes even further than this. And let me play for you this uh, short video. Listen to what he says about the Hebrew because our Old Testament comes from Hebrew. And he's going to say that it may be in your English, but it's not in the Hebrew. Listen to this. Every single Bible in the whole world says the same word in Hebrew. Not one Bible ever found says they pierced. Did you hear that? I'm going to play it one more time. Theoretically. Every single Bible in the whole world says the same word in Hebrew. Not one Bible ever found says they pierced. Okay. This is like a big... Kind of hits you with like, like a freight train. If you're a Christian, you're like, wait a minute. What? You're, you're saying that my Bible and pretty much most of the translations I've ever seen, which they pierced my hands and feet, that they were deceptively wrong. Let me first explain why would there be such two radically different translations. They pierced my hands and my feet versus uh, like a lion, they are at my hands and feet. Here's the two translations, and it's based upon one small difference, basically in the, the English equivalent of one letter being different. Is it ka'aru or ka'ari? Ka'aru means pierced, or bore through, and ka'ari means like a lion, that, so that you would translate it like a lion, my hands and my feet. It's awkward, so they add the phrase, they are at. It, like a lion, they are at my hands and feet, but it's not actually in the text. It's an awkward uh, statement. That's actually one reason why people don't translate it that way. It just it looks like it doesn't belong. Um, but, but this is a one-letter difference. So from Hebrew to English, it seems like, you know, it's just a huge thing, but it's not. It's actually one-letter difference. But first, let's suppose this. Let's just say that they're right. Let's let's say that Tovia Singer is right, and every Hebrew translation or every Hebrew you know uh, copy that we have of the Old Testament, it's got ka'ari. It's definitely like a lion. Christians lied about it. What does it do to my case that Psalm 22 is about Jesus? This is what it does. Here's the case again. I'll put it on your screen. I now have 15 points of correspondence between the death of Christ and the. Um, and, and the, the stuff that we read about in Psalm 22. 15 points of correspondence. They're all the same. I just took out the one that says they pierce his hands and feet. That's what it does. What I'm saying is this is not nearly enough of an objection if you want to overturn Psalm 22 as being prophetic about Jesus. You need a much stronger objection. You can't say Jews didn't see it that way or that it's un-Jewish to see it that way. You can't say it's unjustified in the text. There's a continued revelation of the centrality of the Messiah as we keep reading throughout the scriptures, the Jews recognize this, even the ones that don't recognize Jesus. Um, so it's just, I'm giving up too much ground though, to be honest, I'm giving up too much ground. Because, here's the logic. Verse 16 is mistranslated, therefore Psalm 22 is not about crucifixion. Okay, we already showed that that doesn't work. Even if you lose verse 16, Psalm 22 is still pretty powerful. But here's the thing. I don't even have to lose verse 16 because if I translate it like a lion, they're at my hands and my feet, I'm like, have you seen lions before? What do you think they do when, they, when they're at your hands and feet? I mean, if that guy took a bite out of my hands and feet, it would look like 
Jesus's hands and feet after had, they had been nailed to the, to the cross. This isn't even unlike the crucifixion. It's just a different way of saying it. In other words, this major league of objection to Psalm 22 exposes one, they haven't undermined nearly enough because the whole Psalm speaks about him. Two, even if successful, it still looks like crucifixion. So, yeah, it, it still looks like crucifixion. But the next question is, is it really a mistranslation? And for this, I'm going to put up a timeline and tell you about translation stuff. Um, you should be able to follow this. You don't need to know Greek or Hebrew or you just need to know English to understand what I'm saying now. Or have this video properly translated into another language. Um, so the, uh, uh, the existence of Jesus, that, that stuff, the events of his crucifixion happened right around 30 AD. About 30 AD. Now our Hebrew copies of the Old Testament for a long time, all of them came from 900 AD. And most of our Old Testament Bibles are translated from these copies. They came from you know, 900 years after Jesus. Um, this is the Masoretic text, we call it. There's tons and tons of manuscript copies of the Old Testament Hebrew. It's called the Masoretic. Uh, most of these read, Ka'ari, like a lion, they're at my hands and my feet. About 12 of these, though, they actually read pierced, or Ka'aru, or some variation thereof, which leads us to the reading of pierced my hands and my feet. So here, Rabbi Singer, he says, there isn't a single Hebrew text anywhere in the world that says pierced. Um, well, there's 12, and they're available. You can find this stuff online, and, and I've linked a video in the description where Michael Brown goes over the specific manuscripts with the locations uh, where they're found. Um, so there's a video below. Uh, Michael Brown's an incredible resource. I'll be quoting him a little bit later. Um, so yeah, the point here is Rabbi Singer sounds so authoritative, and he really does, just the way he talks. Like, you just think, like, I don't know, man, but that guy's probably right, because look, he, just the way he talks. Um, he was just wrong. He was wrong, either either knowing willingly, willfully lying about it, or um, or he just said stuff he didn't know. And you know, there's no Hebrew manuscript. There's actually twelve of them, but I get it. There's only twelve out of how many manuscripts? There's only twelve that that point to the pierced reading. But we have more info. You see, you know, a hundred years ago, all we had was the Masoretic texts. But since then, we've done a lot more digging, and we found a lot more things. When we got the Dead Sea Scrolls, we found a copy of Psalm 22. And what was the reading of the Dead Sea Scrolls, which was a thousand years earlier than the Masoretic? We're talking before Jesus, the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Hebrew, the oldest Hebrew in the world of Psalm 22, it says pierced or karu, pierced. That's what we have in the oldest Hebrew manuscript available. It certainly wasn't adulterated by Christians, right? This is, it wasn't written by Christians. Um, these Dead Sea Scroll texts were recorded by Jews not, who were not Christians. And finally, we have the Septuagint. The Septuagint is a Greek translation that backdates before Christianity. It has a Greek version of the Old Testament, but it's actually our oldest copy of the Old Testament. And it's, it favors the pierced reading. It gives us pierced. So we have a threefold witness. What I'm saying is we've got the oldest Greek translation, which is our oldest Old Testament. We've got the oldest Hebrew uh, copy, which is the Dead Sea Scrolls before Christ. They all say pierced. Then we have 12 manuscripts, which means there's a surviving tradition a thousand years later of pierced, this seems like a really strong case that pierced is the correct reading, which is why in most Bibles today, it says they have pierced my hands and my feet. Here's what Michael Brown says. Uh, Dr. Michael Brown, who I'm going to have on my, on my, uh, on my program here at some point, because um, I really want to let him share his content with you guys. It's just really amazing stuff, especially his, his four volume series, answering Jewish objections to Jesus. It is fantastic. Um, and it's available online. 
And there's a bunch of free teaching videos on YouTube and all that stuff too. Check him out, Dr. Michael Brown. He says this, and by the way, he has his PhD in Near Eastern Languages and Literatures. And he responds to Rabbi Tovia Singer's accusations with the following. Actually, I begin the quote, actually, the Septuagint, the oldest existing Jewish translation of the Tanakh, was the first to translate the Hebrew as they pierced my hands and my feet. Meaning Christians weren't the first, right? Jews were the first. Followed by the Syriac Peshitta version two or three centuries later, rendering with Bazu, and I didn't even include that on my timeline, there's another version. Not only so, but the oldest co Hebrew copy of the Psalms we possess from the Dead Sea Scrolls, dating to the century before Yeshua, I had that one on my timeline, reads the verb in this way, uh, in this verse, excuse me, as ka'aru, which is pierced, not ka'ari, like a lion. A reading also found in about a dozen medieval ma uh, Masoretic manuscripts, recognized as the authoritative texts in traditional Jewish thought. Whereas, uh, where instead of ka'ari, found in almost all other Masoretic manuscripts, the text says either ka'aru or ka'ru, which again, either of those is going to lead us to the bore through or pierced translation. The point here is, if you're right about the, the mistranslation of verse 16, you're still wrong about Psalm 22. But guess what? You're not right about the mistranslation of verse 16. So that would be a Jewish objection and an atheist objection. Actually, atheists often get their objections here from Jews because they're the ones uh, who have done the homework on the topic and are trying to produce content. Um, and then other Jews like Dr. Michael Brown, who are, have also done his homework and has produced uh, content to refute it. My point is Psalm 22 Jesus fits, and you can't get around it. You can't get around it with textual gymnastics. You can't get around it with a fair interpretation of Psalm 22, in my opinion. You can't get around it. Not to mention the fact that crucifixion as a method of torture and, and death wasn't even invented when Psalm 22 was written. Right? The, uh, 300 years later, the Assyrians, the Persians started using it. Then it went to the Greeks. Then it went to the Romans who perfected it and changed it. And that's the version of crucifixion that Jesus experienced. And that's what fits Psalm 22. So Psalm 22 fits, and a lot of people recognize this. And so what do they do? Oh, there you go. I forgot to put my face back up. What do they do? They say, Mike, none of that matters. Of course it fits. It fits because they made it fit. Because the New Testament writers, and here's the objection that I think a lot of people had on their mind earlier. The New Testament writers fabricated this stuff. Jesus was never crucified because guess what? Jesus never existed, right? Jesus is a myth. Jesus was made up. And here... Um, we just have to recognize that while this is not considered a respectable opinion in scholarly circles or among historians, it's a popular opinion online, especially amongst those who reject Christianity. There's something exciting to them, I think, about saying Jesus didn't exist. So here's Bart Ehrman, PhD, atheist, scholar. Here's what he says about the mythicist movement. I'm going to quote some atheists on mythicism, and then we'll get specifically to Psalm 22. Um, as well. I do not discuss mythicism in the class since, as I've repeatedly indicated, the mythicist view does not have a foothold or even a toehold among modern critical scholars of the Bible. Bart Ehrman, who made a career uh, writing books, re trying to refute Christian beliefs, uh, typical, normal, orthodox Christian beliefs, um, he has whole careers based on doing that. Um, stuff that I often want to refute. But here, even he, even he will say, I'm not even going to talk about mythicism because it's just, it's just embarrassing. It's embarrassing. How about Maurice Casey, who's an agnostic who perhaps leans to atheist? He says, I therefore conclude, and by the way, he, he studied the mythicist arguments. He wrote a whole book on the topic. Here's what he says at the end of his book. This is this information we received from Mike Lycona when I did my interview on, with him on mythicism. It's also on my channel. 
I therefore conclude that the mythicist arguments are completely spurious from beginning to end. They've mainly been put forward by incompetent and unqualified people. The mythicist view should therefore be, re uh, be regarded as verifiably false from beginning to end. Verifiably false. Let me give you just one more here from Joseph Hoffman, who is a PhD agnostic scholar in this area. Here's his view of mythicists. Do you see it? The disease these buggers spread is ignorance disguised as common sense. Yes, that is what we're saying here about the YouTube channels that are promoting mythicism, the, the, the websites and the occasional forays that atheists make into mythicist territory. It's frequently atheists in my experience. This is just confirmation bias, you guys. Um, it's not real, okay? It's just not rational. Uh, it's not sound. So, so what some say in response to this is, okay, so fine, Jesus existed. I accept that Jesus existed, Mike. I mean, we're more, I'm a more complicated mythicist than that. I'm not really a mythicist. I think there was some guy who, named, who was named Jesus, and you know, he lived in the first century, and so that, that was the movement got started around him. I agree with all that. I just don't think the details in Psalm 22 happened to Jesus. This is the, the final last-ditch effort, right? Um, the final last-ditch effort. The details in Psalm 22, they just didn't happen to Jesus. The problem is that the main detail of Psalm 22 is just that Jesus was crucified. That he was crucified. That he died by crucifixion. Like, you, you can't argue that his name has been proclaimed around the world, that people around the world have turned to the God of Israel. as a, You can't argue against that, right? Like, I hope that you can't argue against that. So all you can say is, but he didn't, you know, get crucified. Well, Bart Ehrman, again, same source, he says, one of the most certain facts of history is that Jesus was crucified on the orders of Pontius, of, of the Roman prefect of Judea, Pontius Pilate, killed by Pontius Pilate through the method of crucifixion. Gerd Ludemann, who's a historian, also an atheist, says Jesus's death as a consequence of crucifixion is indisputable. You can't even argue this. He says it, it's not even something you are allowed to argue, Okay. Because it's just the overwhelming evidence for the crucifixion of Jesus. You can't say the events of Psalm 22 don't relate to Jesus because Jesus wasn't crucified. Because guess what? Jesus was crucified. We have two things that God has given us here. Wonderful historical evidence that Christ has been crucified. And this incredible psalm that seems to predict that exact thing. There's a near unanimous consensus. It's hard to find scholars who don't agree that Jesus was crucified. It's difficult to find any, and the ones you do find tend to not be teaching scholars who have respect amongst their peers. Um, the crucifixion is so well attested that when people are writing their historical Jesus papers in school, they're not Christian schools, right? In secular schools, there's a criteria where they have to explain how Jesus came to be crucified by Romans. Why did Romans even care about crucifying Jesus? You have to explain this because it's such a solid fact of history. It's considered a criteria of offering up their understanding of Jesus. Um, it's just that solidly in there. So I think that the atheists who, who would perhaps say, Jesus is a myth, and then they back off. and they go, Okay, Jesus existed, but he wasn't crucified. And they go, okay, okay, fine. He existed, he was crucified, but still, Mike, there aren't enough specific details because I don't think that some of the specifics, gambling and piercing, I don't think those things happened to Jesus. Um, so it was said for a while that uh, crucifixion victims didn't get pierced, that Jesus was probably tied to the tree. They just said he was pierced because Psalm 22 says he would be pierced. So this is the opposite objection before. The objection was, it doesn't say that. Now the objection is, hey, it does say that, and it does look like Jesus, but it's because they made it say it that way. Well, we actually have found evidence to prove this is not the case. Um, in 1968, we found in an ossuary, a bone box in Israel, 
um, the bones of a crucified man. This guy, his name was Yehohanan, the son of Hagakol, and that was written on the on the ossuary, his name. And you can see his ankle bone here with a nail still embedded in it. It looks like there was a knot in the in the in the wood, and they couldn't get the nail back out, so they just left it there, and it's kind of fused um, with him. They probably, you know, cut the tree, uh, cut the wood off, and then th you know you gave that to the bodies or the people to to process and bury his body, which is interesting because it confirms two things. One, crucifixion did involve nails, at least in certain cases, and certainly that gives credibility to the New Testament text. And two, um, proper burial of a crucifixion victim, we have actual evidence of it from the first century, where some like to say, they wouldn't have buried him, he would have gotten into a mass grave. Well, here's a guy that got proper burial in an ossuary, in an actual burial cave like Christ did. Um, so yeah, crucifixion fits. Okay, so... What, what else can we tear out? I mean, gosh, the bones spread out and, and dehydration poured out like water. All, all this stuff fits. Piercing hands and feet, it fits. It fits with the Hebrew. It fits with the history. What have we got left? Gambling. They never gambled for Jesus' clothes. This is what I hear. They never gambled for Jesus' clothes. And the real reason is because we have no evidence that people would gamble for someone's clothing. I'd like to introduce you to A.N. Sherwin-White. He's a British historian, uh, was British historian, president of the Roman Society. He says, as has been familiar since Momsen, legal texts confirm that it was the accepted right of the executioner's squad to share out the minor possessions of their victim. The custom which must derive ultimately from the custom of plunder on the field of battle became the subject of a legal dispute on which the emperor Hadrian pronounced a solution. You know, about 40 years after Jesus, Hadrian comes around and he's he makes a new ruling about what to do with the property of a crucified victim or someone who's being executed. But at the time of Jesus, it was the executioner's squad who would meet out and spread out and take the minor possessions like clothing. We also couple this. We know that crucified victims were presented naked on the cross, so they had his clothing available. So you can't really argue against that historically either. You, you can't say, oh, Matthew just made that up. Like, But it looks historical. It fits the history of the time and the events. What he made up looks like normal, plain, regular course of action, you know, that takes place when someone's being crucified. So why would you say he made it up? I mean, unless you just don't want it to be true. Why would you say that? I, I don't know. Um, we have confirmation for so many of these events that Psalm 22 looks pretty solid to me. So finally, some say, okay, fine, maybe they could have gambled. I saw this as well on uh, uh, on a anti-missionary site, Jewish site. They say they could have gambled for his clothing, but they wouldn't have because who wants bloody clothes? And I thought this was really interesting because it, 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 it shows our anachronism, right? Um, us living in the 21st century, I really don't want someone else's bloody clothes. I don't care how nice their clothes are. Jesus had this really nice tunic sewn in one piece from top to bottom. That was considered a very expensive item of clothing or at least a very uh, nice item of clothing. It's not like they would buy them in stores. But that's kind of the point. They wouldn't buy them in stores. See, I can go to Kohl's and pick up a new shirt. They couldn't do this in Jesus' day. I think the answer to this rejection or objection is, have you ever made your own clothes? Um, and the many hours and hours and hours it takes to make yourself some clothing. Not just sew together cloth you bought at the store. You've got to make your own cloth. It was all made from scratch. And so you got to like, you know, farm the sheep and cut the wool and process it and weave it and do all this stuff. So yeah, they would want his clothes. Yes, they would wash them if they were bloody. Um, it's, not, it's a non-objection. It's a non-objection. But keep this in mind. 
that the skeptic or the atheist who says that the Christian uh, authors of the New Testament, they made this stuff up about Jesus so that it would look like Psalm 22. The person who says that, they're admitting it looks like Psalm 22. Huh? Did you catch that? They're admitting it looks like Psalm 22. That's a profound thing. So if you're fighting against the historical events happening, it's because you know that it really does look like it fits Jesus uh, and Psalm 22 together like a glove. That's kind of a big deal. So whatever your objection be, those are the main objections that I've encountered. I think we've answered those things. There's so much more I could share with you guys. This is just one thing. I could I could talk to you guys right now about um, how Abraham and Isaac represents Christ and even speaks, prof- speaks about it being prophetic in uh, Genesis where he was told to sacrifice his son about uh, Isaiah 53 that speaks of the death and resurrection of of the Messiah and what it would mean or why he would do it. Um, Zechariah 9 and Daniel 9 and Malachi 3 that speak of when Christ would come, the time period he would come, as well as where he would show up. All these kinds of things. Even Jews recognize this stuff that um, in the Sanhedrin, after the time of Christ, it says, all the days, I'll read a quote from you, Sanhedrin 97b. Here's the last quote and I'm going to go to your objections, your questions in the comments. And by the way, if you were asking a question, we've probably already got full questions, but you just put a capital Q. That's how I do it on my live streams. You put a capital Q and you send the question. I get as many done as I can. But this quote from uh, the the Talmud says, um, Sanhedrin 97b, all the days, all the ends of days that were calculated past and the matter depends only on repentance and good deeds. Now here's what you have to know. Sanhedrin 97b is all about when is the Messiah going to come? And one of the answers they provide is, oh, he was already supposed to come. We missed him because of our sins. I mean, this is Jewish. This is not Christians, right? We missed him because of some failing on our part. And now the Messiah will show up when Israel repents and turns to God. I mean, that actually is very similar to Christian theology. And there it is in the, in the, uh, the Jewish Talmud, Sanhedrin 97b. They recognized there was a time for when the Messiah was going to come and there were things he was going to do. We're just saying Jesus did it and it looks like it fits. And uh, I recommend that you seriously consider these things. Recognize this is one line of evidence, just one, in favor of the truthfulness of Scripture, the inspiration of Scripture by God, the evidence that Jesus really is the Savior of your sins. And I encourage you to put your faith and trust in him. Um, I'm going to go to your guys' questions right now. So um, let me uh, let me try and get those. I don't know if perhaps Sarah's already sent them over. We're short a little bit on our mods today, like I said, so... Okay, I do have some questions. Um, thanks for guys for being with me. I think we live in great times. I don't know if you've noticed, but there's like been a growth over the past couple of years of new Christian channels on YouTube that are pre- presenting all kinds of a variety of interesting and good content. And so uh, I'm very excited that we get to be part of this platform and have an impact in people's lives around the world. Um, it's pretty, pretty good stuff. Pretty good stuff. Um, okay, so LU Graduate 100 says, is pierced in the hands... Hebrew, uh, in Hebrew, the same as wrists as part of the hand in Greek. I, I know what you're asking. It's just the way it's written a little strange for my eyes here. But um, so normally we see pictures of Jesus. We see his hands are pierced here, right? Because the text says hands and feet and they pierced his hands. Uh, but in Hebrew and Greek, in Hebrew and Greek, um, hand, the word for hand, I have looked this up. The word for hand is referencing a whole section from like fingertip to forearm, this whole section. And so we don't have an English word for this section of the arm. At least I'm not, I don't know one. And I feel like I know a decent chunk of English words. And I don't know of a, of a way to talk about this whole section. So we, so we, we have to pick an English word. 
um, forearm, wrist, hand, what do we use? So we translate hand. Um, so Jesus was probably pierced right here, most likely uh, in his wrists right there. And there's a nerve there that would have actually caused quite a lot of pain um, as well, but it would have kept the nail from sliding out of the hand. So my personal opinion is that he was pierced there. And that is work that works with the Greek and Hebrew. Uh, Susan Morales says, what happened after Jesus died on the cross and before the resurrection? Uh, was Jesus always God, even when God's wrath fell on him and he became sin? Um, there's two very different questions. I'll, the, the second one first, uh, which was Jesus always God. Jesus never stopped being God at any point in time ever. He was forsaken, um, meaning he was left to die on the cross. It doesn't mean that God stopped being God or God the Father separated himself in some sort of like fashion that that stripped Jesus of his very deity nature. None of it, it just means he was left on the cross to die. He was forsaken. That's what that means. And, um, and yeah, so he never stopped being God at any point in eternity, past, present, or future. Um, what happened after Jesus died on the cross and before the resurrection? Um, I have a teaching in First Peter where I talk about this some. Um, I think that he went and, and this is my own view, and perhaps uh, I'm, I'm open to learning more on this, but I do think this is correct. I think that Jesus uh, went and preached to the saints who had gone before, and he delivered them from a place of, um, of comfort, but they were outside of God's presence, like outside of heaven, so to speak, but they're in a place of comfort. And he delivered them into God's presence so that now when we die, we're directly in the presence of God and not waiting for the Savior to come. That's short answer uh, for now. Let's see. David Schneider says, hey, Mike, I love your content and your YouTube ministry has greatly blessed me. Thanks, David. Honestly, man, um, I know you guys are real individuals and this stuff really is impacting your lives. And that tremendously blesses my heart. Um, that's why I do it is to do that. And thank you. It encourages me. Um, I was wondering what your th thoughts are on chiropractic. I find the history a little sketchy. Oh, I don't even know about the history of chiropractors or chiropractic medicine. I have no experience with that. Um, I know people who've been helped by chiropractors and I know people who've been hurt by chiropractors. And I think it just depends on the chiropractor. But I have no insight as to the history of, of the branch of medicine that it is. Um, LU Graduate 100 said, uh, did Jesus... Did Jesus's shoulders pull out of joint on the cross? Yes, that's that's what we're saying happened. His shoulders pulled out of joint, if not other bones as well. Um, I can imagine several bones being out of joint because of the contortions and stuff that he was in. Hi, Mike. Does this is from Malachi? Does Second John one verses nine through eleven support the concept of guilt by association? Um, let's bring up the scripture and see if we can try to answer this question. Second John chapter one, verses nine through 11. Let's read the text first, then I'll finish your question. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teachings of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the father and the son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring his teaching, this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Um, it doesn't say, uh, okay, so let me read the full question now. Um, if your ministry were to partner with or to advertise that you share and support the same theology as a friend, but that friend also supports and endorses an organization and or an individual that teaches a false gospel. Does that make you at fault for being associated with that friend, according to the text? Uh, no, I don't. That's like two steps removed. So I support someone who, who in turn supports someone else who is preaching a false gospel. I'm not, but I didn't, I don't think I can be held accountable for, for not only who I support, 
but for who the people I support support. And then maybe the people they support, it's like a never ending thing. Um, I'm just accountable for the people I'm supporting. And when he says, don't take them into your home, what he means is this, like in the context at the time, there were like traveling individuals and there would be a traveling teacher who would come to your neighborhood and they'd say, hey, I've come and I've come to share with the church and I've come to, you know, teach the things of Christ to people and they have a false gospel. Now you focused on hospitality, something Christians often forget is a huge deal to God, hospitality. You would be like, if you're, if you're, you're serving the Lord, you're traveling around in his name, come into my home and I will house you while you're here. I'll feed you while you're here and you can teach. He says, those people reject them. Don't help them. Don't assist them in their ministries. Don't make place for them to teach. It's not just don't eat with them. It's, it's beyond that. It's like, don't support them in their, in their venture of missions because their mission is wrong. So I would say it's a one-step association. I don't want to support and help people who are preaching a false gospel. That's the idea. Um, all right. Next question is from Haley Young or yeah, Haley Young. Um, when you have any questions about the Bible, do you have any recourse you consistent a resource you consistently rely on. If I wanted to do my own research on biblical topics, where would you direct me? Um, that's a tough question because I always try to look, especially if I have a, a real tough questions. I look for multiple resources. So I'll look at, you know, with I use Logos Bible software. Um, actually, I have a link in the description if you guys are interested in this. It's like a, I think I think I put a link in there. It gives you ten percent off, um, and it's an affiliate link, but uh, it doesn't cost you anymore. It's actually cost you less. That's why I'm giving it to you, but. But uh, I use Logos software, which has lots of different commentaries. So I'll, I'll, I'll listen to various different commentaries on that particular passage. Um, I'll go online and I'll research and see if there's any, anything I can find. I go to Google Scholar and I'll see if I can find like someone who's done like some scholarly writing on the topic. Uh, gotquestions.org is a really great, simple resource. I recommend gotquestions.org. And if they have something weird they teach, I'm not aware of it anyway. Um, I found their stuff to be pretty, pretty good and helpful. But I, I always say, look for multiple resources. Try to find more than one person talking about the topic. That is, I found to be really valuable um, in my time. Marshall Villager says, I don't understand why God is communicating through these prophecies that are easy to misunderstand or doubt when he could do it in a more direct way. Didn't God realize that ancient prophecies would be hard for people to verify thousands of years later? Um, okay, Marshall Villager, I, I just I just want to kind of say, um, I, I sort of want to understand where you're coming from and agree with you. Um, it could be more clear. I agree with you there. It could also be less clear. Right? Like, what if there were no prophecies? Like, just like, let's hypothesize about this for a second. There's no prophecies about Jesus at all. Jesus shows up. There's no Old Testament. There's no nothing. There's just this guy, Jesus, just shows up. And then we have writings about him from his followers. And that's impressive. And maybe you can build a historical case for the resurrection, that kind of thing. But there's no prophecy. There's nothing written a thousand years before Jesus shows up. I'm like thinking that's a pretty significant loss that we don't have those things. As far as how obvious it is, though, how obvious is Psalm 22? I think that the breakdown I've offered makes it pretty obvious. I really do. Um, I think it makes it very obvious. And I think a lot of people know this. In fact, I'll say it's some of these passages in the Old Testament are more obvious than people realize. Isaiah 53 is so clearly about Jesus that often you can read it without any commentary and people go, that's about Jesus. Like, just try this. Go read Isaiah 52 verse, I think it's verse 12, 11, verse 11, all the way through the end of 53, chapter 53. Go read it to someone and just ask them, who is this about? Who is this about? And most likely, if they know anything about Jesus, they'll tell you it's about Jesus. Um, Isaiah, though, was written 700 years before Jesus showed up. And so I, I don't think it's so vague as all that. I do think that prophecy can be challenging. 
Some people quote verses out of context to try to support pr prophetic things. Some things are harder to understand than others. I agree with all of that. But I don't think it's as bad, perhaps, as, as maybe in, it is in your mind. Um, Air Church says, how do unbelieving Jews explain this psalm? Uh, how do they try to fit it in? Is this suffering is this suffering author Israel like in Isaiah 53? Okay, so um, Rabbi Tobias Singer, my understanding is his position is it's just about David, end of story. It was just about David, something happened to David. Um, Rashi, who admits that it's, you know, he's this authoritative interpreter uh, from the Middle Ages. He admits that it is definitely about a future event, but he thinks it's about Israel as a nation suffering, quote, as one man. Um, now, what he does, though, when he goes through Psalm 22, is he like itemizes or atomizes the verses. It's not building a, a continual theme about one person. It's like his interpretations of each individual verse get kind of wild, to be honest. And so you might go the Rashi route and just have these sort of wild, um, super poetic, really super, you know, layers of symbolism kind of interpretation. Or you might go the path of like uh, Rabbi Tobias Singer and say it was just about David. But we literally know nothing in David's history that relates to the events of Psalm 22. And we know a lot about David, but nothing that relates to the description he gives that sure looks like someone dying on a cross. Um, question from Alex Duncan. Mike, uh, what are your thoughts on moments like Jesus calming the storm, echoing Psalm 107, or Jesus calling out, come to me all who thirst, relating to Isaiah 55 during the Feast of Booths? Yeah, I think, uh, okay, calming the storm, I, I don't, that verse in Psalm 107 doesn't immediately come to mind. Maybe I'd have to study that. Um, the come to me all you who thirst relating to Isaiah 55, absolutely, I do think it relates. And I think it relates powerfully. I have a teaching in my Jesus in the Old Testament series on the feasts of Israel. And in those two videos, I get into that specific issue, that specific quote. And it's more uh, profound than people probably realize because they were quoting that same thing when Jesus said it as part of the feast that was going on. So... Uh, pretty neat stuff. I do think that was well in the mind of Jesus and his audience. Uh, Michael Morbillo says, uh, do you know of any churches in New York City that believe like you? I'm sorry, Michael. I just, I don't really know many churches outside of my own fellowship, to be honest. I know people from churches, but I found that you kind of have to go to a church for a while to learn them. And I just feel hesitant to recommend churches I haven't really been to. Um, what I would say is, you know, try a church out for a season and just try it out for a season. You know, just make sure you're going to fellowship somewhere. But try it out for a season. Listen to what they teach. Um, don't be fearful. Trust that the Lord can lead and guide you by his Holy Spirit and that you can test what you're hearing when he's teaching. You've got your Bible open and you're you're checking it out and you're thinking about it so that you can get plugged in and be involved somewhere. It won't be a perfect place, but they need to have the essentials of the faith and it shouldn't be too hard to figure out if they don't. Just go up to the pastor or the leaders there. Ask him, what do you believe about salvation? Uh, how, am I, when I go to, when I die, what do I need to go to heaven? Is that it? Is there any more? You know, ask them those kinds of questions and find out what they believe and what they teach. Um, let's see. Um, it's almost 6.30. I, we, this, I knew this was going to be like a longer stream and I was like okay with that uh, because of the content. I felt like I really wanted to get all this meat out. But I will... Um, let's see. Yeah, I'm just going to wind it up with an encouragement. Um, the encouragement is this. Um some some of the stuff like when you go into prophecy it can feel overwhelming like with uh marshall villager brought up something specific about like it just seems too vague to me you know and it, like i i want to say i get where you're coming from i really do but i also think this sometimes happens when you have a more shallow understanding of prophecy 
and that's not an insult, okay? It's not like you're you're a jerk for having a shallower understanding of something. You just haven't dug as deep into it, okay? I have a shallow understanding of Pokemon. I don't I haven't dug deep into it. Um, I haven't maybe haven't dug deep into, deep into prophecy. And oftentimes, when you read the New Testament and it quotes something prophetically, like in Matthew, and then you go, oh, and there, oh, you go to the Old Testament. Oh, where is it fulfilled? And you look at it and you go, I can't figure out how Matthew was getting this fulfillment. Like I'm just confused by it. That's not uncommon, but. That's the shallow understanding. The deep understanding is going and understanding that book Matthew was, te- was quoting, the concept throughout the Old Testament that Matthew was referring to. And then you see that what some people think Matthew's just pulling stuff out of nowhere is actually his really good understanding of the Old Testament. And this is the case with Jesus, the case with the scriptures. The more I study, the more I go, this is not a shallow misuse or out of context quote. It's a careful understanding of the passage in context. I just thought you could just pull a verse out and use it. But no, no, they're looking at a whole theme, a whole concept, tracing through various places in Scripture. So in that, I'll say have some patience. Have some patience and beware because there are Christians who are satisfied with the shallow understanding. And then they present the shallow understanding like it's the full understanding. And that just irritates people who have deeper questions. Well, I'm one who has deeper questions. And if you are too, you should subscribe to this channel as we go through these things and we break them down more carefully and more thoughtfully. And we find that the, um, that the Christian faith has stronger foundations than most Christians are yet aware because they only dug down one inch to find out what was there. And we want to dig down several feet. So uh, thank you guys for, for joining me. I just pray that you're blessed and that God shows you the truth of Jesus Christ and that all this stuff is intellectual until you realize this means God loves me. Wait, this means God loves me and that my sins are washed away by the blood of Christ and that I can trust in him, my savior, to give me life, eternal life after death. And that God's been inspiring this text. He's been at work in the writing of the scriptures so that he might communicate a message to the world about salvation through Christ. That's powerful stuff. So thank you guys so much. Um, and uh, yeah, that's it. See you next week.